0: You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm
1: Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Before we get started today, we wanted to let you know about our October class called The Importance of Womanist Biblical Interpretation, taught by Reverend Dr. Angela Parker.
0: It's happening October 25th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time.
1: It is indeed. And this class will cover topics like the foundations of womanist theology, the fundamentals of womanist readings, the significance of apocalyptic literature and womanist thought, and the future of womanist interpretation in biblical scholarship.
0: And when you sign up, you'll get the one, night live class, a live Q&A session, a link to the class recording so you can watch it later, and downloadable class slides.
1: And it's pay what you can until the class ends, then it costs 25 bucks to download.
0: And as always, if you want to access all of our classes for just $12 a month, you can become a member of the Society of Normal
1: People. To sign up, head to com front slash womanist interpretation.
0: Today's topic on faith for normal people is attachment theory and God, and I'm talking about how early relationships might impact our view of God, how important it is to see the Christian tradition for what it is, and some ideas on how to overcome negative thought patterns. Yeah, we cover a lot of ground, and I'm talking with Kristen Fort. Kristen is assistant professor of clinical psychology at Fuller Theological Seminary, where she specializes in the integration of clinical psychology and biblical theology. What a fit for Faith for Normal People. So don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for quiet time. When Pete's going to join me, we'll dig into how these themes of the conversation have played into our own journeys of adapting faith. But with all that said, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kristen Ford.
2: These three different ways of having insecure attachment styles are are really common And attachment theorists who are starting to ask questions about relationships between God and humans are trying to ask the question of those early relationships that we had with our parents or other early people, does that shape how we relate with God? Or is it possible that developing a relationship with God over time actually can redeem the insecure attachment styles that we initially had?
0: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing.
1: And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And that's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code normal people.
3: Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously
2: and... 6-1, since that matters. And what do I even say
3: other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.
0: Kristen, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you.
2: Thank you. It's so good to be here.
0: Before we get into the topic at hand, let's just talk about why you're interested in this topic. We're talking about, you know, psychology, attachment theory, and this intersection of faith, which is what your background is in. So maybe give us a little context for why this matters to you.
2: Yeah, thank you for the invitation. I love relationships. I'm not the only human in the world, of course, who loves relationships, but it's been a privilege to be able to gear my vocation and career towards trying to understand what relationships are, why they are what they are, what allows them to flourish, and someone who is immersed in clinical psychology, what gets in the way of relationships flourishing. I'm super interested in relationship between humans, of course. Um, I'm also interested in relationships between humans and the environment at large, but also in particular, the relationships between humans and God. And that's really what kind of piqued my interest in attachment theory specifically, is by the time I entered graduate school and started my PhD, the field of attachment theory had blossomed enough that there were religious scholars and then secular scholars who were curious about the number of religious people who really thought that they could have a real relationship with God. And they're like, what's up with those people? And by the time I got to grad school in the early 2010s, I was able to begin to plumb the depth of relationships, not just between humans, but also between humans and God. And attachment theory provided a broad framework. That was familiar to many people in my field.
0: Let's start there. Start with the basics. What is attachment theory?
2: Yeah. So something you'll notice about me is I love context. So here's a little bit of background to how attachment theory came to be and then what it is. Attachment theory is a broad theoretical framework or a way of just understanding how relationships work between people. But it was actually started by a British psychiatrist who studied under one of the first female psychoanalysts, Melanie Klein. Not many people know this, which is why I like to toot her horn because uh, she's one of the first people who studied under Freud. But she's often not discussed in like normal people circles. Um, but she should be. And so this guy, John Bowlby, studied under Melanie Klein and realized as he was working with her that it wasn't only important to study relationships between adults, but also to study the relationships between adults and children, and between children and each other. So he and under the guidance of Melanie Klein became Among the first group of people saying, we should understand how children work, how they think, why they are the way they are. And as he began doing his research, especially in his medical profession and as an analyst, he kind of toggling between those two. He discovered that part of why people are the way they are as children is because of the adults who shape them, which, of course, is like, duh to us. But it wasn't a duh thing back in the day. People actually used to think that children were just mini adults, you know, however we are as adults. Can we just start off that way? We're born that way, which is not quite true. So attachment theory is birthed out of this idea that something significant is happening, something formative is happening early, early in life, in these pre-verbal times, before we even have words to describe what's going on inside, and on what's happening in terms of how we see ourselves and how we see the world. Bowlby calls this our internal working model, or IWM. The internal working model for how we perceive ourselves and how we perceive the world is actually shaped by our early relationships with our primary attachment figure, or PAF in short, <laughs> if I'm writing. A primary attachment figure back in the day in the Western world was considered to be the mom. And oftentimes throughout human history, women have done a lot of the caregiving for children. But that has blossomed, so we know that the primary attachment figure could be anyone. A dad, a nanny, a babysitter, grandparents, any number of people. And all of that really tries to understand what goes well to create what they call secure attachment relationships. And what goes wrong when insecure attachment relationships take place? And a whole theory has been developed about the patterns... Not just what we intuit is happening, but what can we study empirically um, over time as we're observing relationships? And attachment theory was born out of that.
0: Okay, so attachment theory is looking at these preverbal ways that we form attachments to a primary attachment figure. And that can happen in ways that we would say are secure. Or ways that are insecure. And so it's looking at the patterns that what led to a secure attachment, what led to an insecure attachment, so that we understand that. So if that's what it is, what impact does that have practically in terms of what do we see when it comes to secure attachment and how people then develop later and then insecure attachment and how that develops later?
2: Great question. So, this matters, all this like theoretical jargon matters because in real life, we're curious about what makes people healthy people and what gets in the way and it makes them kind of have this poor mental health, poor emotional health, poor relational health. Attachment theorists will say that it's the style of attachment that they developed very early in life. And it's because that early relationship, say with their mom, if they had a secure relationship, which means they begin to view themselves as lovable, as worthy, as whole. That all these good things, as they begin to develop this view of themselves, that they are good, they have this internal view of themselves and a view of the world that says I'm worthy. So if someone in my life, say I'm a toddler and I go to preschool, and I'm three years old and someone takes my toy and someone hits me and someone spits on me and no one wants to play with me, all these bad things happen. If my internal working model says, but I'm good, then something else must be going on. Why they're hitting me, why they're doing these things, it's not just because I'm a bad person no one wants to play with me because I'm bad. That internal shaming voice, they say, is mitigated by believing that I'm actually worthy. It might be that I did something bad, so maybe mommy would say, yes, share your toy, or yes, maybe you shouldn't do these things that make them not wanna play with you, but not because I'm bad. Our internal working model, our view of ourselves, comes from the messages that we receive when we're really, really young. And if I receive these positive messages, and it's not just said with words, but it's reinforced with my parents' behavior that's actually essential, then I actually begin to believe these things. But if it's not the case, uh, then that insecure set of attachment styles can develop. And I can then say, yeah, the three-year-old doesn't want to play with me over there because no one ever wants to play with me. My sisters don't play with me. My parents don't play with me. It must be I'm a really bad girl. And I have that view when I'm tiny, even when I'm one, two, three. And I don't know that I've been carrying this idea around for my whole life. But then, you know, at 38 or something, we can think about where did I come from? Uh, and attachment theory is trying to make sense of where those early views of self and the world come from.
0: Is this internal working model, the phrase that came to mind when you were describing it is a a filter or a narrative that then gets reinforced over and over with experiences. It's sort of like our starting place. It's the lens through which we see things. And so then it happens to color our experiences. So if our foundational narrative is we're lovable, we're worthy, then data gets filtered to that. And now some of it may sneak through and still have kind of a shaming effect, but by and large, we're going to reframe these experiences from that fundamental starting place versus the other. Is that a way of saying it?
2: Well said. It's a beautiful, beautiful reframe. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Okay. The next question I have, and this is going to start bleeding into the theological or the, the God talk here. Right, so let's. Let, I'll be your case study here. I grew up in a tradition that said that I was unlovable and unworthy as kind of a theological starting place, right, in terms of total depravity and original sin, and it was meant to highlight or amplify God's love. Like, look how unlovable you are, and that sort of makes God really good. But I, I'm curious if there's been any research or what your opinion is on the interactions of the influence, because I would have grown up in a family system. With a lot of secure attachment patterns. And so I didn't grow up, like, I kind of viewed that theological doctrine with kind of a grain of salt because I didn't take it that seriously because I grew up feeling very loved and very secure. So I'm curious what the two, what the interaction is, because I do think, I guess, really, my question is, and this is a dicey way to ask it. That's okay. How influential is the messaging of like original sin and all of that if? we have secure attachment in these like you said it's like it can be tactile it can be feelings it can be hugs and stuff can that be dismantled by a theology that gets shared on sunday yeah. am i making sense
2: i think you are making okay. sense and i hear you asking a broad question of what's the relationship between what we hear maybe from our parents and our family system what we maybe hear at church or in sunday school or catechism wherever someone might receive some theological teaching right catholic school Yeah, any of those kinds of things. I think, yes, I think they are mutually informing each other. And what's always interesting to me, both in terms of my psychological work and my theological work is when they actually don't get along and we don't acknowledge it. So sometimes I'm told as I'm growing up, like I'm super loved, but like my theology in Sunday school says like, actually, I'm loved, but actually I'm really bad. Like, wait, but like, wait. What's happening, right? It raises actually some questions. And often we just bypass those things. We just kind of hold those two things, not even in tension. We just allow the two things that actually don't coexist very well to coexist. And my interest as a scholar is like, can we just acknowledge that some part of this does not make sense? There's an illogical process here. We just need to try and make sense of. I do think as a practitioner, so as a psychologist who's in practice, I do. I see over time as I'm working with Christian clients or post-Christian clients, right? People are working out faith and faith issues with faith that they eventually are naming some of the breakdown of like, I was told this, I was told that God loves people who are good, for instance, and I I was good. And if this is God's love for me, this type of suffering, this type of pain, this type of desire to be in a relationship that I can't find or whatever it might be, then I have some questions. I'm like, that's a good question. Somewhere in there, it's actually a theological question of how are you viewing God and your relationship to God? So I do think eventually we get to a point in time where the rubber meets the road and we're like, does this actually make sense? I think what's interesting to me is I think about my own journey as a scholar, starting as an undergrad student, when I first started studying psychology and theology formally at Wheaton College, I had the privilege of being able to ask questions about like, wait a minute, where did these things come from? And it was the first time I was able to hear alternate theologies that wasn't just like, oh, maybe this total depravity. And I wasn't taught that explicitly, but implicitly, my tradition, a non-denominational tradition, definitely adapted that Calvinistic perspective. And I remember getting to college and taking some theology classes and learning like, wait a minute. There are early church fathers and mothers who actually thought perhaps we were created inherently good. What? Also, like, how do I make sense of the doctrine of, you know, creation in the first place? It raised other questions for me.
1: Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast-growing trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
0: We got our bushes in
1: That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different.
0: There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
1: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu.
0: How have psychologists and theologians used attachment theory? I've been hearing about this more and more. I feel like more articles, more books to talk about people's relationship to God.
2: So I think what's interesting to me, I think in the mid-90s, early 90s to mid-90s, Some psychologists became interested actually in trying to understand religious people. (laughs) So, before the psychology in general has actually always been interested in religious people. So, William James, one of the first psychologists, he's also considered a philosopher, wrote a book about like the experiences of religious people, trying to understand what the heck is going on with religious people, which is a great question I'm still curious about. But I am mindful of the fact that in the 90s, psychologists started asking questions about religious people and trying to understand why, like I said earlier, we think we have this real relationship with a divine being. And not just like, you know, I pay homage to this divine being, I offer sacrifices to this divine being, you know, old school style from hundreds and thousands of years ago. But like, I love this divine being. This divine being loves me. So that that started in the 90s. And also the reverse also began to happen. So when Freud becomes a psychoanalyst who like creates this talking cure back at the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, theologians also start reading this because theologians, as we know, are normal people. They're just people who happen to spend most of their time thinking about God. And so they started reading Freud and trying to figure out, can these things go together? And so you actually see in their scholarship, theologians starting a long time ago, starting to reference what Freud and and other of his contemporaries are writing about. And then if we fast forward, kind of like I was saying to the 90s, specifically, attachment theory as its own specific part of psychology has become big enough that people are asking questions about the attachment relationship to God. The question there is, if I say there are four different attachment styles that can develop for a person with another person, a secure attachment style is one of them. Then there's three types of insecure attachment styles, three ways for things to go wrong. They can go very, very wrong in the disorganized attachment style where you don't even have a consistent way of engagement, like everything is so chaotic, that there's no way of looking at your behavior and saying, oh, that's the type of insecure you are. And that is kind of broadly understood to be this disorganized or fearful avoidant style. But there's also the two more common styles of insecure attachment, which is the avoidant style. That's the person who's like, I won't mess with you if you don't mess with me. And that's because we're trying to avoid rejection. So in, in order to avoid rejection, I won't even have any intimacy. It's easier to avoid being rejected if I just don't have any closeness, if we're not proximate, if you can't reject me because we're not close enough for you to do that. And then there's the other end of the spectrum. That's the insecure anxious or insecure preoccupied type of person. And that's the person I lean in that direction in my moments of insecureness where I'm like, wait, 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 you can't reject me because I'm going to love you really, really, really hard and I'll do all the things and I'll go overboard and you know, all of that. These three different ways of having insecure attachment styles are, are really common And attachment theorists who are starting to ask questions about relationships between God and humans are trying to ask the question of those early relationships that we had with our parents or other early people, does that shape how we relate with God? Or is it possible that developing a relationship with God over time actually can redeem, we might say to some Christianese, (laughs) the insecure attachment styles that we initially had? That view of self cannot shift.
0: Can I ask then on the psychological side, when we talk about redemption I guess whenever we put it in the context of a relationship with God, it can seem like that's like a supernatural thing. But is that something that can happen with when you're older, say if you have, you know, avoidant or anxious, insecure attachment, can you find a relationship that will help, you know, can you develop or overcome, I guess, that through relationships as adults?
2: Yeah, that's right. The answer that many people think is yes, that it is possible. whether you're a Christian or not, but like research does have some good backing behind it saying that you can have an initial attachment style, but over time, this can happen with, for instance, a significant other. Say you get married, you learn to actually perhaps develop a a different and perhaps more secure attachment style. There's debate around this because attachment styles do seem to persist over time. You still have that proclivity or that leaning, but there are ways to begin to kind of rework those internal working models where some people might say those automatic thoughts that we have, those self-perceptions, that self-concept.
0: So then when you're talking about God... It's the same as a significant other. It's, it's seeing that relationship as an opportunity to develop a, a healthier way of seeing yourself or that internal working model.
2: Yeah, and I think I would say it's similar. I don't know if it's the same, and this is where some good empirical research needs to continue, and I'm hoping some of the students in my research lab will choose that that's what they want their dissertations to be about, is to be able to ask what's different, or is it the exact same? Because one of the things that's significant about attachment relationship, it's based in proximity. It's based in closeness. And what we don't have with God is physical proximity in the way that we experience proximity or closeness with humans. And so we get to ask again, where does the analogy of like an attachment relationship with human is similar to an attachment relationship with God? Eventually that breaks down. And that's the case with any time we speak about God, right? Eventually the words we use don't really measure up. But yeah, we ask that question in attachment too.
0: So let's talk more about this attachment theory in talking to people's relationship to God. So maybe can you just map out a little bit what that looks like? Is it sort of, we can identify how we relate to this primary attachment figure and see parallels in how we relate to God? And I guess, I guess my real question is, what's the value of that? If I am able to say like, oh, I have this, oh, and I see it here, what value does that have?
2: I think for me as a scholar, part of the value is is trying to find language to understand like psychologically what theologically we think is really important. So theologically, Christians and many faith traditions, but from the model theistic traditions, right? Jews, Muslims, Christians, but particularly Christians think that a relationship with that divine being, that divine other matters. And so for me as a scholar, I'm like, how does it matter? Why does it matter? What's happening? So on that end, it matters to me <laughs> as an academic. But practically again, for normal people, like for all of us kind of just in our normal lives, I think it, it matters because if we have been able to figure out If we have an insecure attachment style, for instance, how to work towards that redemption, like I was saying earlier, like if I know like, oh, like I'm struggling in my relationship with God, my faith is low, like it's difficult for me to believe that God is who God says God is, or that God will do what God says God will do, if I can learn some things that what's helped me in my relationship to other humans, not just any human, an attachment relationship, I didn't say this earlier, is about a relationship with a really important human, a formative human, which is why we talk about significant others or parents, not just like any random person. But the attachment relationship is the one in which, in some ways, if we switch metaphors, is like the person you've... The imprinting process has taken place, you know, like when a duck is born of like whoever the first person is, like, the, or, you know, first animal of the duck sees like, oh, that's my mom, you know, like that type of imprinting relations of what we're talking about, those early, super formative relationships. So I think it's helpful for normal people when we're thinking like, if I need to rework some things, rework my view of myself, that internal working model needs to change. If I want to believe, for instance, here's an example. If God says I'm fully loved and I didn't grow up believing that. My mom never told me that. My dad never told me that. My kids at school didn't reinforce that. But theologically, I'm supposed to believe this. Is there something that research on attachment theory has about how to overcome a negative internal working model that I can then learn from? To help me actually begin to flip the script, to actually believe I am fully lovable. Not just like God says I am, God says I am, but are there practical things I could do? Are there people I could be in relationship with who I realize I shouldn't just have just general friends? I probably need a mentor. I probably need a best friend who knows to use those words, for instance, in my life. Not just to say, but I love you, but to regularly remind me to end the day with a text that says, "Hey, I love you so much. Whatever it is, whatever the psychological literature is saying is helpful for flipping a script. How can that be helpful in me believing these things in my relationship with God, not just with other people?
0: Maybe the opposite is also true in that awareness of our attachment styles also sees how maybe we're drawn to theologies that actually reinforce unhelpful internal working models. So, we had a guest on who was talking about having a, a struggle relationship with her body, and she found solace in a theology that said your body's bad and it was like see like it just reinforced it so maybe you can say more about that
2: oh my gosh (laughs) yes i love that you've had that conversation i think in general we gravitate towards things that just reinforce whatever we've been taught or whatever we want to believe and that happens for theology too like we just gravitate towards any type of theory or any type of theology that's like yep that's what i've always been taught i think there's great harm obviously, and it comes with the body, right, that comes with theologies that say that the body doesn't matter, that God is actually only here to redeem the soul, that actually the part of us that is worthy is immaterial. I just think there's so many problems that come with that, from struggles with eating disorders, to cutting, to like, you know, might as well die now, because to live is Christ, to die is gain, like, you know, you can use any theology, you know, to get to a really interesting and often problematic outcome. And I think there's both great harm and simply reinforcing these, I think, negative theologies that we've heard. But there's also, on the flip side, great good and realizing what Jesus could have meant when Jesus said, I've come, that you might have a life that might be full and meaningful. And I think psychology is doing something helpful in the last century or so to help us understand what a fullness of life could look like outside of material gain, like internally, our, our interior world and our relational world, what that could mean. And that gets me excited.
0: Yeah. And again, for me, it, it is also... Even just that awareness can be a powerful tool to see how, oh, it may not be that this is the universal, absolute truth of things. It may be that I'm drawn to this because of experiences when I was very young.
2: That's right. And for me, part of what's helpful for me in my own theology of how the Holy Spirit works, what God is up to in the world is to believe that God, God can use any of these things to draw me to God's own self, including broken things once I realize it's broken, I prefer not to stay on that track or kind of with that particular framework. But yeah, as I, as I think about kind of the fact that just in general, any theology we have, none of it is going to be flawless. It's encouraging to me to think about, again, that word redemption that I mentioned earlier, that God can use that, even if eventually I realize I probably need to break away from that part because it's a little too broken for this season of my life.
0: Of different theologies, there's something I think that's, that's important because if we're going to talk about how attachment theory relates to our relationship with God, or maybe this is a little cynical, but I think even to talk about our relationship with God, to use that word relationship, it seems only relevant if God can have emotional experiences, if God can interact with us at a relational level. And again, there was this disconnect, like you said, where you're holding two things together that you don't realize don't really go together. Like... For me, when you said that, my thought was, yeah, I think for the first half of my childhood, I just held together, of course, dinosaurs lived on the earth millions of years ago. And of course, Genesis 1 to 6 is literal history. Like, I didn't have any disconnect. It was just like both those things lived in my head as though there was nothing wrong with both of those things. And so, in the same way, we talk of relationship with God or this idea of attachment theory having any relevance to our relationship with God. And yet, a theology that says God, the technical term is immutability, right? God cannot change. God cannot be affected because anything that's less than perfect, right? This is old philosophy, but anything that's less than perfect can't be God. And so, if any change reflects imperfection and therefore can't be God. So, how do these go together?
2: Yeah, well, I'll start by saying I think as people of faith, for whoever is a person of faith, we acknowledge that faith, by definition, at least the definition I use from the book of Hebrews means that there's something I don't see. So I want to acknowledge that I'm going to hold something. Like I believe this is true that I don't always have the clearest of evidences for it. So what I said earlier that comment about we're holding two things that don't even make any sense. Faith also doesn't make logical sense. I'm just going to acknowledge that off the bat. Like, I mean, it just, yeah, it sometimes feels like you're, it's a blind faith. I don't think that we're made to always be holding things that don't go together. So I want to start by saying some things might not feel like they go together, but eventually enough things should go together that we have a coherent narrative. I think that's important. To your point about that doctrine of immutability, God's changing or unchanging nature in this case, it's significant to me for my research to talk about a really similar doctrine that often has been overlooked historically, has become much more popular recently, which is the doctrine of divine impassibility. That immutability is that changing, or in this case, the unchanging nature of God. If God is immutable, God's character is unchanging. And I think that's true. I still hold that. I do think that God's character and nature is unchanging, and that's debatable too. lots of good conversations to have about process theology, and many other things about how God might or might not be changing, which I'm here for those conversations. But I also think the doctrine of impassibility, whether or not God can be affected like you're talking about, and underneath that umbrella term of God being affected or impacted is whether or not God can be emotionally moved or changed. And I, I don't think that scripture bears that up. And there's great disagreement in the field about that. There's some great Old Testament scholars who have a lot to say about God's potential passibility. And historically, the church's stance on God's impassibility, God's inability to be moved emotionally. I think not just in the person of Jesus. If we're looking at the text of scripture, yes, Jesus is clearly moved. And the debate is Christologically, right, around Christ. Well, if Christ can feel then of course God can feel. And there's all the questions about, right, wait, is everything that Christ can do something that God can do? And all good questions. But I think the thing that got me into this deep, abstract, <laughs> philosophical, and theological set of questions as a psychologist is the belief, this doctrine, that humans have been created in the image of God. And there's been great debate over time and throughout history of what does that mean? So for part of history, maybe people have talked about this in your show, but for part of history, theologically, us being made in God's image meant we were intellectual beings. God is a bright, intelligent being, and we have the capacity to be bright and intelligent, unlike, or more so, perhaps not unlike, but more so, and that's debatable too, but then, other members of the animal kingdom, maybe that's how we image God. And then there's a the conversation as like relational Trinitarian theology develops of like, wait a minute, maybe it's because God is inherently relational. There's three persons. Maybe that's how we image God. And As a psychologist, wanted to bring the question of what if God is an affective being? We seem to see in Scripture, both in Old and New Testament, not just in Jesus, but also in the person of God before Christ comes on the scene, that God seems to feel a lot of things, and God seems to feel them very, very deeply. And I went to ask some questions of like, I want to know if I experience emotion. Is that because I'm created in God's image? And that's where that started from for me. I come as an African-American woman. I come from a people where emotions matter a lot. We express emotions. You can hear it in our voice. You can see it in our faces. Of course, in our words that we use, whether it's for singing or whatever it is, speaking, preaching, emotions are very important to our cultural context. It's a part of the question for me as a psychologist is like, is there validity here? Is there theological substance or theological backing for this? And I don't think we should proof text. Like, I like that I come from an emotional people, so let me go find emotional things in God. Like, I don't think it should go that way. But I do think our cultural context get to shape, and they always do shape the questions we ask. And in this case, I got to be explicit about it. I know that I come from a people where emotions are important, and my personality accepts that emotions are important. So I want to ask theologically, is there room for this? And that's kind of where it started for me. And... As a person who was raised in a a home where Scripture was very important, very, very, very important, I was raised in a very evangelical family, even though we didn't always use that term as a Black family, I am mindful of the fact that the evangelical piece looked very different in terms of politics than it does now, so you can just keep that in mind. But theologically, what that meant is that we had a high view of Scripture. And I remember thinking, I started reading Scripture on my own when I was in elementary school, and I read it cover to cover multiple times, and I was like, I see this in God, And so it's because I see this in God that I had to ask questions of, does my theology start with the text of scripture or start with this, this way of understanding the world, right? Kind of outside of scripture philosophically.
0: Well, and and ironically, not to open up a can of worms, but the fact that we would even have to, even your disclaimer of we just don't want to, put our own context onto scripture, kind of read into it, whatever we want. I think for me, that's coming from a place where we've had about 500 to a thousand years of white culture reading that into the scripture so that the default is that God isn't that way. But if you actually read the Hebrew Bible, it's pretty <laughs> obvious that God it feels is. things. That it's It is. Like, A lot of times in sort of white biblical scholarship, there's an accusation of African-American or liberationist or whatever adjective we want to use kind of reading into the text. And it's like, well, that's just because there's a default that we're like completely washing over things that are very obvious. Like God has emotions in the Hebrew Bible. That's pretty clear.
2: Love that you're highlighting that. 100% that's true. And before, like, before theology was white, broadly, with a racial group, right? It was a specific think It was, like, German. Or it was, like, it was specific. And if I think about Germans and emotion, just take one sec. You know? That literally tells you so much if you've thought about how culture and theology go together.
0: And all of, like, the top theologians for 200 years were German. And so, Correct. it's exactly. like— oh, so wait, this isn't exactly how God is. This is just how all the people who were writing all the theologies were.
2: Exactly. And of course, we recognize theology existed before the Germans, right? So, we go back to like early, early church, right? The immediate ADs, you know, then we can see that there were ideas about trying to preserve a view of God that was not one that God was whimsical. And that's actually where this idea of divine impassibility came from. If the Greek gods sleep with whoever they want, fight with whoever they want, kill whoever they want, if they're ruled by their affections or their emotions, our God is not like that. And that was a really important type of theological statement to make and still is. At the same time, we get to look at the Hebrew text like you're saying and see, well, God has some kind of emotions. Just as an aside, one of my favorite texts is the book by Abraham Joshua Heschel on the prophets, where as a Jewish theologian who's not a Christian— who also was super involved in the civil rights movement and other things I love about his life as a practitioner, as an an activist, as a Jewish theologian, he said that if we're going to speak about the emotions of God, we have to speak about them appropriately. And if God does have any emotions, and and Abraham Joshua Heschel and I disagree, and (laughs) he's obviously a really prominent person to disagree with, but he talks about the fact that anything that we see affectively about God is always in relation to humans. We have to be careful. We get to ask that theological question is just because I see God relating to humans in this way, does that mean God is always like this outside of engagement with humans? And that's another set of theological questions to have. But my point is, I think even before we get to whiteness and theology and Europeanness and theology, where th- there was theology before Europeans took over. And that's really important to remember. And there were good questions that were being asked on both sides, Beth.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, as much as this is about, attachment theory, I think one of the through lines of our conversation that you keep highlighting, which I think is very important, is the value of respecting our tradition and seeing the tradition for what it is and the value that it brings, but also then the pitfalls that it brings. And that's important because, again, if you're reading theology from 19th century German scholars, and your belief is that there's only one right way to see this and that context doesn't matter. We're just getting to the rightness. Rightness doesn't have a context that can really color how you then see that's the lens through which now you're reading older traditions and you're reinterpreting those now through the lens of the 19th century Germans. And then kind of, we keep compounding how we see the the traditions instead of seeing them in their own right, similar to what we just said about the Hebrew Bible, where we're reading it through a lens where we're saying God is impassable. Therefore, whatever I see in the Hebrew Bible cannot lead me to the conclusion that God has feelings.
2: Yeah. And I think for me, this is the part that the word evangelical, at least that tradition has something for me, though, again, politically, I'll always distance myself from it from here on out. I think it's significant to me to be able to say that uh, evangelical scholarship seeks historically to look at the text first, right? And we can look at other traditions like the Catholic Church that talks about multiple things we look at. We look at tradition. We look at the word of the Pope. We look at, you know, a including scripture. Evangelicals tend to say, we we get this from Martin Luther, like sola scriptura. We start with scripture. It's only about scripture. That's all there is. Even if we start by looking at scripture, we always start by acknowledging. I say this to my students all the time in class. I do believe that objective truth exists and that's debatable as an argument by itself, but I I happen to still believe that (laughs) objective truth exists, but I can only perceive objective truth subjectively. That's only possibility. And so I think God and God's mercy knew that before deciding to enter a relationship with us. And so with all the the nuances and complexities and just the things we get wrong, I think God is like, God's here for it. We're just going to be here in the mess of you bring your subjective lenses for all the good and all the ill that comes with it. and, And I think that's welcomed.
0: Okay. We've gone a lot of places and I have thoroughly enjoyed the journey, but as we wrap up, I want to come back to this idea of attachment theory in our thinking about God and God's relationship to humanity. What's the value for everyday people? And I'm thinking here of our audience who are maybe searching for a, a different way of thinking about God and definitely a different way of relating to God how is your work? And it doesn't have to be attachment theory and specific, but just your work. What of that may be a helpful next step for people in terms of how they think, how they practice. I mean, one thing that you said earlier that I thought was very practical was having friends in your life who know the right words to use that even though they're trying to affirm you, there may be a specific way that can overturn some of these things. And if you know what that is to be able to ask those people to use those words. It's like so helpful and so practical. Are there other things like that?
2: Yeah. Broadly speaking, I think as a psychologist, I find it really helpful, especially as a practicing psychologist. I think it's really important to always pause and engage in what I call these self checks, where I just check in with myself. Like, how am I doing? Uh, that's become really popular thinking about mindfulness and kind of techniques and, you know, those types of things. Like what's happening for me in my body in my mind and my spirit. And I think it's important to do in our relationship with God. To engage in these self-checks, to be able to say, how am I feeling towards God? What am I thinking about God? Am I even thinking about God at this point in time? How am I behaving? Does is, is there a discrepancy between I say these things about what I how I experience God, but I don't, I don't actually feel that? I think when we engage in those self-checks, it's important then not to stay only in our own heads, but to welcome some safe others into our experience of God and with God uh, and our experiences of ourselves. So I think about the fact that for me, part of what's been grounding practically is to have groups of people, uh, women and men, but often women in my world, who I can be honest about. Like, I, I wanna believe God for these things. God has said that I, God is gonna be you know faithful in these ways, and I'm really struggling. And so for me, I've gleaned some of the practical tools of a self check, of mindfulness, of like checking in with my thoughts, of acknowledging that it's a negative thought and I can let it pass. I don't have to fixate on it. That's a, a tool that I receive from psychology. And I can use that tool in my relationship with God. But I bring other people into that relationship with God. I welcome other people. So for like traditional Christian circles, that can mean in a small group or accountability partner or someone who gets to hear kind of what's happening in my head about how, I, how I'm how i relating with God or what I'm thinking about who God is or what God has said to me. And I guess all of this is framed for me in this idea of growth is really important. So wherever I am with God, if I still believe God exists, right? if I'm in that space, there's always room to keep growing. And so I want to bring other people into my world in a strong, hopefully secure type of relationship with me to help me then strengthen or develop a secure relationship with God, and that means that means being authentic and honest with myself about where I am. Saying I'm not doing super well. So here's an example of a psychological thing. I think with the fact a season several years ago in grad school, where I was super overwhelmed, and I realized that actually every winter I always became this overwhelmed. Like not just like, oh, life is hard. But like I got super anxious, super discouraged, and borderlined on hopeless. And once I got to the third year of that happening, I was like, okay, this is a pattern. And usually when I think about the things I struggle with, I like to keep them to myself. That's my preference, actually, you know, I'll suffer and bring it to Jesus and, you know, we'll figure it out. But I really do think community actually matters. And I remember talking to a group of women that I still meet with regularly um, 13 years later. And I remember telling them about 10 years ago, I'm really struggling. Every winter, I watch my thoughts spiral out and it looks like some form of depression is happening and some form of intense anxiety. And it tends to let up around March or April, but it's it's really bad. And it gets to the point where I'm actually concerned about my own well-being. I'm praying and I'm doing all these things. But I, don't, I'm not, I don't think that's enough. And I remember them saying, we both will join you in praying over you, praying for protection, praying for wisdom, praying for insight. Like, should you take meds? Should you go to therapy more? Like, What are other things you should be doing to discern with you in this community of discernment? But they also said that in many ways, they got to be the voice of God to me when I was having difficulty hearing God's voice. So then they would come in like next year. Hey, hey, it's November. I remember you said that winter is hard. How are you doing? Where are your thoughts? How much have your thoughts spiraled? And to me, that's not just being good friends psychologically. This is actually a prayer group where we were meeting, talking about things going on in our real lives. And they get to be, to me, the hands and feet of Jesus to be able to say, this is what's going on. And we don't want you to bear this alone. And And because you've shared this with us, we won't make you be the person to have to bring it up again. We remember that it's November, December. We know it's, you know, January February. How can we carry this load with you practically and not just like bear on another's burdens in the biblical sense? That's all theoretical. I feel grateful for those types of experiences.
0: Wow. That's a lovely way to wrap up in terms of a vision for how we can find support in the, again, kind of when it comes back to attachment, not to generalize something that's very specific, but having those voices in our head that are countering the tape that's running that may not be to our benefit.
2: A hundred percent. And those women really are. They do become, like a significant other, they become those two women in particular, right? They are those strong, secure voices that are helping to flip the script for me.
0: Excellent. Well, Kristen, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it.
2: It's a been a privilege.
1: And now for Quiet Time. With Pete and Jared. So Jared talking about attachment theory and attachment styles is I f- find very very interesting but I, I got it's I'm new to this <laughs> so just I mean for the benefit of maybe the three other people who are as dumb as I am out there just you know rehearse a little bit of what's behind it so we can talk more intelligently about it
0: yeah I think it'd be good to review and again i I'm no expert at this either. So I'm more just, you know, kind of replaying how, how I'm understanding what Kristen is, is sharing. And that is there were psychologists who understood how we interact with people in our life, primarily what's called the primary attachment figure, the person that we kind of ascribe a lot of connection and meaning to in a pre-verbal context, like before we can even talk that that relationship is, is really important for how we relate to other people, later in our life and how we relate to other people later in life based on that early connection is the attachment style because what happens is that that early relationship creates what uh, kristen calls this internal working model like it's the tape in our head that tells us whether we see ourselves as lovable worthy whole secure or unlovable unworthy unwhole and i'm sure those are binaries that are on a spectrum right like you you can be somewhere in there and then that manifests in these attachment styles. And so she talked about four different ones. The one is secure. So that is, you know, primarily you view yourself as lovable, worthy, whole. And so you're kind of a a contained unit. And so in relationship to another person, you're not anxious or avoid, there's not a lot of emotional discomfort, in that relationship, you're sort of secure in that attachment because you're secure in yourself is how I would kind of frame that. And then there's three insecure attachment styles, which are the disorganized, fearful, which is kind of a combination of the others that it's hard to uh, really articulate. I mean, at least I'm sure they're in the literature, maybe there there's ways to articulate it. But the other two that I was more familiar with before going into this are the avoidant and the anxious Um, and the avoidant attachment style is it's, it's better to say, well, I don't need you kind of thing, or I, I run away from intimacy in these moments because the attachment feels too uncomfortable or it's, it's too, the potential for feeling uh, unworthy and unlovable to have that reinforced is too great. And so I might as well not even go there. So I avoid that. And then the other is anxious or preoccupied where you kind of need it so much that you're going after it. And so the classic relational Challenge with this is if you have someone who's avoidant and someone who's anxious, you have like the pursuer who is constantly like we might call them, quote, needy, although it's probably not the best way to say it, like needing of attention, needing to feel loved, needing to feel connected all the time. And the avoidant person is kind of like, this is too much. I feel smothered. I feel trapped. And so they'll kind of run away. And that just actually... Makes the anxious person more anxious, like they notch it up even more, and so then you go round and round in it in a cycle, which can, you know, be a harmful pattern. So that's that's kind of the overview, the summary from the the episode that I would take.
1: Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, what what I've thought about is how you know, I, I'm, it doesn't have to be your one. I mean, it may be like a predominance of a personality, right? It's not your, this is how you do it. Because I can see myself in all these dysfunctional ones, <laughs> <you know>, depending <laughs> on maybe my the phase of my life where I was and growing in areas over the years, you know, where maybe, you know, probably having a good nurturing mother and father when I was young probably did a lot because I never felt really, I never felt unworthy. I felt Other things when I was young, like I'm not, it's not that I'm unworthy, but that I might not be able to do something. Mm -hmm. And um, I probably got that signal from somewhere, but that was maybe post-verbal. I don't know if that's pre-verbal. So, I think once we start verbalizing and thinking and analyzing and abstracting, you know, we can start putting these pieces together a little bit differently. But the model is great. You know, because those early years, people tell us, you know, they're not do whatever you want for the first six months. No, they're they're crucial, those first six months for for how children how human beings develop.
0: And then Kristen, you know, I would say for me, the I would be mostly probably secure. It feels weird saying that because but I think that's probably true as I reflected. If I if I have a tendency, it would be more toward the avoidant than anything. Uh, but I do think that, you know, Kristen, one of the main reasons we had this conversation with Kristen was the interesting connection she makes with how that might affect our relationship to God. And that was helpful for me to think through, oh, I think I might have avoided a lot of the damaging aspects of evangelicalism in my experience. Again, that's not everybody's experience, but in mine, like all, a lot of people have shared the things that were hard, hard for them or harmful or hurtful for them didn't affect me in the same way and i wonder if it's related to this in that kind of having that secure attachment style it wasn't that theological tradition or the way it was manifested in you know my growing up couldn't really prey on my like insecurities or the idea of being unlovable or unworthy or unwhole if you already have a tendency to think that, then things like total depravity are going to like, they're going to reaffirm what you kind of already think about yourself. So you're going to be like, oh yeah, exactly. I had this suspicion I was unlovable. And now the person up front who has all the authority is telling me I'm unlovable. And then I just double down on it. Where for me, I was like, oh, this is kind of clashing with actually how my intuition is guiding me about who I am and how I am in the world. And so I think that kind of protected me in some ways. I don't know. How how does this, as you're hearing about it and maybe new to you, how does it impact how you're thinking about God or church or
1: I mean I think it might clarify some things for me that I have pondered over the years but never really put language to it. But you know, the avoidant style, well that's me too, you know, and I I think again not not to defend myself or to overly contextualize this, but I think a lot of men (laughs) have trouble with intimacy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's sort of like, I've heard this for many, many years, and I think it's true. And so that affects things like, you know, people say being in God's presence and prayer, for example, is like, I just want to sit on the couch and be left alone. Like, right? don't you, do you hate God? No, I just, I don't know. I just, I don't know. You know, that kind of thing. And it's, it's, I would like to think that God understands our dysfunctional attachment styles. Right. So I'm not, I'm not worried about what God is thinking or anything, but it does affect. My willingness to even be alone with myself sometimes and my thoughts, I want to do something to move out of that uncomfortable space. so and i've and I've tried to think about where did that come from in my life. I don't really know, and I don't have to know, but it's interesting to me like why did my personality develop the way that it did?
0: All right. Well, I'm hoping, you know, a lot of Faith for Normal People when we launched this was the hope to have us kind of be more real and have people on who can really talk about how these concepts play out in our emotional lives and relational lives. And while it's it's uncomfortable for me, even sitting here, you know, kind of getting (laughs) real, I think it's helpful. So I think we'll have more of these conversations in the future.
1: Yeah. And again, things that we might not feel comfortable with just in conceptually. Especially me, right? In, in this case, it's like, oh, this is new. Oh, crap another thing to think about. But hey, that's why we're here, you know, and, and, and we we do the work. That's one thing about having a, a guest on that we do. We actually wound up doing the work as a result. Yeah. See you, folks.
0: Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com
1: front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review,
0: and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at com.
2: You've just made it through another episode of Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch our other show, The Bible for Normal People, in the same feed wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People team. Brittany Prescott, Stephen Henning, Wesley Duckworth, Savannah Locke, Tessa Stoltz, Danny Wong, Natalie Wyand, Jessica Shaw, and Lauren O'Connell.